Good morning, everyone. Ah, got an enthusiastic wife back there. Welcome to week five of our uh, sermon series on Flip the Script. Um, in this series, pa Pastor Mike and I wanted to talk about the biblical idea that God wants to take your life from what it is and make it something different. Through the power of God, we can take one kind of life and exchange it for another. We can trade darkness for light, death for life, hopelessness for confident expectation, sin for righteousness, spiritual thirst for satisfaction. God wants to make your life better. He wants to take away your guilt and replace it with forgiveness. He wants to exchange your hatred for love. And we called our series Flip the Scripts. To flip the script is to reverse the expected, usual, or existing positions in a situation and to do something unexpected or revolutionary. God wants to flip the script of your life. He wants you to do something unexpected and revolutionary. God wants your life to be exceptional. God does not want you to be normal. His plans for your life reverse the expected trajectory and put you on a new course that leads to the abundant life. Um, the, the memory verse that we just, uh, we just read together is where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In the ESV translation, it puts it like this. It says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that abundant life, having life to the full, that is what God wants for your life. We are not made to just get by from day to day, make it to the end of the week, and pay our bills. That is not the abundant life that God has called us to. God wants your life to be extraordinary, abundant, and full. And in this series, we're talking about different ways that God wants to take the normal life and transform it, flip the script on normal, and give you the abundant life. And today, the trade that God wants to make in your life uh, is about trading living for yourself for dying to self and living for God and others. Our natural tendency is to look out for ourselves and to seek what is best for ourselves. We do things that we think will make us happy. We make choices based on our own goals and desires. But God calls the Christian to something better. He wants us to move past living for ourselves and start living for him and for others. We're going to take a look at one of the places where Jesus teaches this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And uh, by the way, if you, uh, if you want to uh, be able to preview some of our sermons and kind of get the idea of what we're talking about, a lot of times we will post uh, uh, what sections of Scripture to read ahead of time. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and you'll see these kinds of things so that you can uh, read up these passages before the sermon so that you're all ready to hear what God has to say from it. Okay, so Luke chapter 9. It says, uh, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves 
and take up their cross daily and follow me. I want you to make sure you notice the scope of this instruction. He says this to them all, and then he says, whoever wants to be his disciple. And there's two key things about that. Uh, One is that this is an invitation that is open to everyone. Jesus does not say, if you are a really good person and you don't have a lot of baggage and you want to be my disciple. He also does not say, uh, those of you who don't struggle with depression or addiction and want to be my disciple. He also does not uh, say, only those of you who are weak and desperate and your life is in a shambles and you want to be my disciple. Then, No, his, his uh, invitation is for everyone, no matter what your situation, no matter where you come from, no matter if you're struggling through life or riding a wave of worldly success, this invitation is for all. And then the second part uh, to notice here is that the requirement is also for all. He says, anyone who wants to be a Christian must deny themselves take up their cross daily, and follow Jesus. Um, It's not just for those who really want to be serious about their faith and choose to be extra religious. Sometimes we get that idea that, okay, yeah, we we can be saved and we can be a Christian, but then, you know, some people really take it a lot further and they're really religious people and they do extra, but that's not the way this is. This is a requirement for anyone who wants to be a Christian. If you are not willing to do what Jesus is saying here, you cannot be his disciple. And Jesus makes that unquestionably clear a few chapters later when he says this. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Doesn't get much more clear than that. But anyway, we go back to chapter 9 where we were first looking and he explains why this is. These next verses say, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So if you want to save your life, you will lose it. In other words, if you want to hold on to control of your own life, If you refuse to die to yourself and submit to Jesus, you will lose your life. doesn't mean that you'll instantly keel over right on the spot there. Um, But you will fail to inherit eternal life. When this life is over and you stand and face final judgment, and we all will face final judgment, if you have not given up your life, and submitted to Jesus, you will receive eternal death rather than eternal life. So if you want to save your life, if you want to keep it for yourself, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus, if you give up your old worldview, your old identity, your old goals, and you submit to Jesus and his way of living, then you will save your life. You will spend eternity living with God. And then the second part of this verse uh, is the well-known saying uh, of what good 
is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Jesus makes a very strong point here about the necessity of giving up your old selfish life. Because even if you were to accomplish all of your goals and all of your dreams and, and you know, win the whole world, um, you would look back at the end and say, wow, that was a dumb decision. I've gained all this, but look what I have lost. So, that is the flip that Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants you to die to yourself and to live for him instead. And that is really a big, big core idea of what being a Christian is all about. And, and the implications for your life, that's really what we talk about pretty much every week here at Clearwater Church. What does it mean to live for God instead of living for yourself? But I want to focus on, uh, on, on one of the really big, clear implications of this idea of dying to yourself. And that is that we must not live a selfish life in which the cares and concerns of others are seen as of small importance compared to our own. So here's, here's the thing about that, though, is that the idea that we shouldn't be completely selfish that's not really a revolutionary idea, right? Uh, we have a word for people who care nothing about the concerns of others. Uh, we, we call that kind of person with no empathy and no concern for anybody else. That's a psychopath. And that kind of attitude is pretty much frowned on by people all over the world. Um, so, so, so is that our standard? Is, is, uh, as long as you aren't a psychopath, you're doing okay? <laughs> no, the biblical idea here goes much deeper. Most people, whether they're Christians or not, really do care about other people. Um, it's not a big flipping of the script to say, don't be totally selfish. But there is a higher calling here. And I want to tell two stories from the Bible that illustrate the two scripts that we can follow in this area. Both of them are pretty well-known stories, so I'll, I'll tell them fairly quickly here. But the, the first one is the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah was a prophet of God who lived in Israel about 3,000 years ago. And the book of Jonah uh, starts out telling us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was kind of northeast of Israel on the banks of the Euphrates River uh, in what is now Iraq. And Tarshish was off in the western Mediterranean in the complete opposite direction. So when, when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, he goes down to the coast, gets on a ship, and sails away. And uh, we'll talk about why he did that in a couple of minutes here. He'll, he'll explain it for us. But God didn't want Jonah to go to Tarshish. He wanted him in Nineveh. And so he caused a great storm to come up. And the sailors tried everything to avoid sinking the ship. They even threw all the cargo overboard, which is a pretty extreme, uh, extreme uh, thing to try to, try to uh, save the ship. But meanwhile, Jonah recognized that God had sent the storm for him and that the only way that the ship wasn't going to go down would be if he wasn't on it. 
And so he told the sailors, you just need to throw me overboard. And they were very reluctant to do that, but eventually they could see uh, that the, they were in a serious situation, so they did. And as soon as Jonah hit the water, the storm was completely gone. Meanwhile, Jonah apparently wasn't very much of a swimmer, and uh, life vests had not yet been invented, and so uh, Jonah was in some trouble. But, but God doesn't want Jonah dead. He wants him in Nineveh. And so God used a very novel way to get Jonah back on the right track and headed toward Nineveh. The Bible says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, I want to just take a moment here uh, to take a little time out and uh, deal with that statement for just a second. Because uh, for some people, they read this part of the story and their immediate reaction is, really? He was swallowed by a big fish. Uh, what kind of a fairy tale are we looking at here? And, and they immediately, um, they have a big problem and the whole story is kind of thrown into doubt. Uh, because how could someone possibly survive being swallowed by a whale or a fish or whatever and live inside of it for three days before he gets barfed out at the end? <laughs> and of course, the answer is that there is no natural way for this to happen. Uh, I know some people have tried to do studies and they're, oh yeah, there's certain animals that they have such a big thing they can swallow and maybe it's a baleen whale so they don't chew anything up, they just swallow it whole. And, well, yeah, okay, but how are you going to breathe for three days underwater? So there is no ex natural explanation for how this is possible. But there is a supernatural explanation. A God who can speak the world into existence, who created the stars and planets and galaxies simply by saying that he wanted them to exist... He can certainly keep Jonah alive in a position that would normally not be possible. And anyone who doubts the accuracy of the Bible because it contains these unbelievable miracle stories like this, what they're really saying is that they just don't believe that God exists. Because if there's really a God who can create everything, surely that God can keep someone alive inside a huge fish and live to tell the tale. If the God of the Bible exists, then he most certainly could have kept Jonah alive for three years in the belly of a fish if he wanted to. Okay, okay, now back to the story. So Jonah's in the fish, and God puts Jonah back on track uh, via three days in the fish, and he does go to Nineveh. And it turns out that God really wanted to use Jonah in Nineveh. And God softened the hearts of the people there, and when they heard Jonah's warning about the coming judgment, they repented. And it says, uh, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So you would think that Jonah would be pretty pleased at this point. This was a better result from his preaching than he ever got back home in Israel. Uh, we know that the people of Israel during Jonah's time were not following the Lord for, for the most part. And Jonah was preaching to them, and there was never a, a great time of repentance and turning to God uh, during his lifetime in Israel. 
But Jonah was not happy. Here's what it says. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. But now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So why did Jonah flee to Tarshish? Because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and a God who relents from sending calamity. And so when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn the people about the coming judgment, Jonah thought to himself, coming judgment? That sounds great. And what if I don't go and warn them? Then they'll have no warning and God will judge them. So Jonah was quite happy with the compassion and forgiveness of God when it is coming his own way. And if you read the book of Jonah, um, the, the, there's a section in there of his prayer that he prayed while he was in the fish. Very thankful for God's mercy and compassion on his own life. Or even when it's coming to his fellow Israelites, he's very happy with the generosity of God and the compassion of God. We don't have any indication that he ever resisted God's call to preach to his own people. He hoped that God would forgive them. But his enemies, the people of Nineveh, God says judgment is coming and it's up to me to warn them. What if I don't warn them? Then the judgment will come and God will squash them as they deserve. That would be great. So was Jonah a psychopath? No. He cared about his own people and their spiritual lives. And he served as God's prophet to his own people. But Jonah's circle of love and concern did not include his enemies in Nineveh. But God's circle of love and concern did include even these very ungodly people. Here's the conclusion of the book of Jonah when God is correcting Jonah's view on things. This is the very end of the book. It says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? You see, Jonah had his own priorities and goals. He wanted to see his own people in right relationship with God, and he wanted to help them find forgiveness and eternal life. But he needed to flip the script to God's priorities and goals, which were much bigger and broader than his own. He thought that he was doing pretty well by loving the people around him. But God called him to extend his love to people who were not like him, people that he, in fact, had good reason to dislike. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the most, they were the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And they were a warlike nation of conquerors and dominators. They were a, a, uh, an empire. 
And in fact, it wasn't too long after Jonah's time that they forgot their little period of repentance here, and their armies did march on Israel and conquered and destroyed them. And uh, it was only godly King Jehoshaphat down in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. He managed to barely survive the Assyrian invasion because he turned to God and God saved him. So Jonah had strong reasons for wanting to see God bring judgment on Nineveh. And in his heart, those reasons outweighed the fact that they were also people created in the image of God who were loved by God and cared for. So the other story I want to tell shows a contrasting picture to the story of Jonah. And this one is a fictional story that Jesus told in order to answer a question. He was discussing theology with another Bible scholar, and they had just agreed that the two greatest commandments were the ones that we always say at the end of our services, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the question that the other scholar asked Jesus is, okay, then who is my neighbor? In other words, how wide must my circle of love and concern for others be? Who is it okay not to love? Who's outside the circle? And so Jesus tells him a story about a Jewish businessman who is traveling a road through the mountains when he's attacked by robbers who beat him and rob him and leave him half dead on the side of the road. And two good Jews come by and see him there, but they, oh, not my problem. I don't want to get involved. I'm busy. But then who should come by but a Samaritan businessman who is traveling the same journey. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you heard Pastor Mike talking about uh, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan. They were in Samaria at the time. And she, when Jesus talks to her, one of the reasons why she's really surprised that Jesus would talk to her is because Jews and Samaritans don't get along. They don't have casual conversations at the well, and they certainly don't ask each other for a drink of water because Jews and Samaritans were social enemies. So how is this Samaritan in Jesus' story going to react when he sees this Jew beat up on the side of the road? He could have walked on by like the others did, thinking, ah, oh, not my problem. I didn't beat him up. It's not, not my thing. He's not one of my people. I'm busy. I got things to do here. But instead, he looks beyond the social and ethnic differences, and he sees someone in need who he has the ability to help. And so he helps. So what is Jesus trying to say? What is the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Who is it that I must show love to? How big should our circle of care and concern be? Jesus' answer is that our circle must include those who are not like ourselves. Those who are of a different ethnic group than ourselves. Those who have needs, no matter who they are. Now, in addition to these kinds of stories, Jesus also taught this principle very directly in his preaching. And we're going to look at that now in uh, Luke chapter 12. If, the, uh, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, 
What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Another time when Jesus was teaching on the same topic, he put it like this. He said, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? So that is the challenge. That is a different script. The typical script that Jesus wants to flip is not total narcissistic selfishness. Right? It's not as if, as long as you're not a psychopath, you're doing okay. Jesus' standard is much higher. The typical script is to love those who love you. Greet your own people when you see them on the road. Jesus says that's not good enough. Jesus calls us to love those who do not love us, even our enemies. Then you will be children of the Most High. That is, you will be his children in the sense that you are like him. God shows love to all people. But what if they don't deserve it? What if they deliberately rebel against God and despise his ways? God still loves them. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He cares for all people, and we are to do the same. On uh, Wednesday, I was at a lunch in downtown Anchorage uh, for a ministry that's a great illustration of this principle of the expanded circle of care and love. The ministry is called Beacon Hill, and the focus of the ministry is helping Christian people to help kids who are in bad uh, family situations. And sometimes that involves helping to place kids with Christian foster parents. Uh, Sometimes it involves helping parents not have to place their kids into the foster care system. Uh, And sometimes it involves helping Christian families to adopt local kids. Right now in Alaska, there are 150 children who are ready to be adopted uh, by a forever family. We have uh, several families in our own church who have, been, uh, who have chosen to be foster parents or to adopt uh, children. Why would you do that? Why would you make that choice? It's a huge commitment of time, energy, finances. And these are not your own genetic children. These are someone else's children. And, and these people have chosen to bring uh, them into their lives and make them a part of their families. Sometimes temporarily, in the case of foster parenting and things, or or sometimes for a lifetime, in the case of adoptions. Now, there is one driving motivation that causes people to make this kind of decision, and that is love. Jesus taught us to draw our circle of love and concern wide, to include kids who need a new home. 
It's easy to say, that isn't my problem. Those kids are not my responsibility. But Jesus calls us to expand our view of the world. God loves those kids, and he calls us to love them. Now, that's just one, uh, one area, one example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, there are a lot of needs in our world. Where is God calling you to be involved in meeting needs? Where is God calling you to expand your circle of love and care? Sometimes God does what he did for Jonah, which is he called Jonah very specifically, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And sometimes he does that for us. He tells us, this is what I want you to do. I'm giving you a call to this particular need, this particular place, and I want you to serve there. Sometimes it's more like the Samaritan who's just traveling down the road, going about his business, and he sees a need that he can address, that he can, can help with. What will you do when God points out a need to you? Will you say, not my problem? These are not my people. This is not my... How wide is your circle of love? Who are you not including that God wants you to include? And how are you going to meet the needs that you can meet of the people around you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a challenging thing for us to, to think about. But I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the love so that we will truly love the people we see that have needs. I pray that you would help us to feel the love that you have for them and the, the care that we need to have to truly be your children. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.